We are launching into eight weeks of the book of Genesis and we're looking at Genesis from possibly a different perspective, maybe a different way than you've heard it taught before, than you've understood it before. Um, so I, I would really I love you to come along the journey with us uh, as we open up this incredibly creative book and see just uh, what God sort of captured for us in this Uh, in this origin series that we're doing. So let's pray and let's crack open Genesis. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we're we're looking at the beginning. We're looking at the Bible. We're looking at our origins. Uh, And we're looking at what you want us to learn about creation. Uh, Looking at what uh, Scripture has recorded and what that tells us about you. Would you open our eyes, our ears and our hearts this morning? Lord, we've all... We've all brought our week with us. We've brought our experiences. We've brought our, our joy, our happiness. We've brought our sadness. We've brought our grief. Lord, some of us are missing people. Some of us found it difficult to get out of bed this morning. And others are so full of life and joy because great things have occurred. And we bring all of this with us today. We don't try and forget. We don't try and push it aside We bring it and we hold it. And Lord, we want to invite you into all of those aspects of who we are. We are complete whole beings, Lord, and we invite you to all of us. The good, the joy, the sorrow, the grief, the sadness. And we ask you, God, to minister, to challenge us, to inspire us, to speak to us, to lead us to a new and different place. Would you open our eyes and ears as we look to scripture today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So the way that we read Genesis is, uh, is, is very, very important. And I'm sure that for most of us, we have a way of understanding it and a way of interpreting what those first Uh, chapters of the Bible are all about. And so what I want to do is I want to present to you the three most common views, uh, ones that I'm sure you've heard or understood and and sort of been taught to you in some shape, form or description. The first one is called Young Earth Creationism. And this is the the view that God miraculously created everything in six literal 24-hour days. And so what the creation, young earth creation uh, people believe is that they take the dates that are in the Bible from the age of Adam and, and all of those things, and then they date back, and then they say that the world was created, I think it's between six or 10,000 years ago, and that everything that's in the earth was made by God in a supernatural fashion, and the rock formulations and the geology that says that that things have taken millions and billions of years to be made. Young Earth creationism says that's just the way God made them and that we are created in that time period. Most of us were probably taught this in Sunday school. Young Earth creation people are generally incredibly passionate about young earth creationism and it's a valid and okay way to read the Bible. Um, young Earth people who are sort of the, the, the main leaders in this area is a man called Ken Ham. Uh, he's a, a sort of a, a loud proponent for this, and he's the guy that does a lot of the debates and, and arguing about this. Answers in Genesis uh, is the main ministry group behind uh, Young Earth creationism. 
And a lot of uh, young earth creationism sort of holds the premise that if the first part of the Bible is not literal, is not actual, if God didn't make the earth within six days and seventh day he rested, if God didn't do that, then they say it's difficult to hold on to the rest of the Bible. And so maintaining the literal six-day creation becomes really, really important because if that is not held firm, then there's this fear that the rest of it will be ebbed away and we will lose something of who Jesus is. So that's young earth creationism. That's the first way that uh, we can interpret Genesis. Second way, this is called gap theory. And this uh, came about because in the 18th century, as geology started to grow and the science began to grow, Christian geologists started to say, there's all of these rock formations and all of this, this stuff we're starting to learn about the earth, and it has to be older than 10,000 years. And they couldn't reconcile their, their science with their faith. And so kind of <clears throat> in the 18th century and, and earlier, this idea came about, and Augustine actually was kind of one of the first to start this. He actually started to say that there's Genesis 1 and 1 and 2 where it speaks about God's creation and all of those things. And after Genesis 2, they speak about this gap where there was this fall in heaven, where Lucifer fell and there was this angelic war and they lost and they came to earth and there was this desolation and there was this gap. And this gap could be millions of years, it could be billions of years. So between Genesis 2, but 1 and 2, there's this gap. And after the gap, then in Genesis 1 verse 3, it speaks about God creating light. And the gap theory people say that this light is the second creation, the recreation. And that gap is allowing all the fossils and the rocks and all of those things to sit there and happen. So that's gap theory. Third one, this is the last of the major ones. It's called day-age creationism. <clears throat> I've got a little picture there of, of the Hebrew word yom. So day-age creationism is all about how to interpret this, world, this word yom. And this word yom can be, it's generally interpreted as a day. Uh, but there are other passages within scripture that say uh, that it could be longer. And sort of there's this idea started to, to brew that day-age creationism, the, the first day of creation, second day, those days aren't literal 24-hour days. Those days represent an age. And that age could be anything between one to a billion years. And so day-age creationism is the idea that there is this age between and everything has a chance to naturally grow and evolve and change and develop as science would suggest. And day-age creationism sort of was popular and it is sort of slowly coming back and becoming more and more popular so day-age creationism is a way of trying to marry some science with the text. So day-age creationism and young earth creationism are at opposite ends of the spectrum. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of arguing and sadly a lot of fighting about how it is that we understand Genesis. So they're the three main views. And I'd like to present to you a, a different view. 
And I just want to say to you, as we present this different view, uh, it's not the view, it's our view. So if you disagree, that is completely fine. I'm very happy for you to disagree. Uh, you can hold on to a different view, and I can hold on to a different view, and we can get on well. Amen? Fantastic. So the view that I'm going to present to you is uh, written by a guy called John Walton. And John Walton is an Old Testament scholar, and he's arguably probably the preeminent Old Testament scholar. Uh, a lot of people agree with him, and, and a lot of the young earth people tend to disagree with him. But he is a guy that has to be listened to. He's a profound scholar. I've actually met him, which was fantastic. And... Uh, and I've met him, he's a lovely, lovely man. So he says, and one of the things that he says in all of his writing is that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So he's saying that the, the person who, who penned the scripture did not have in mind Aaron in 2018 in Bentley when the scripture was written. The, the person who wrote the scripture wrote the scripture for the audience that they were writing the scripture to. And my role, my job as uh, an ethical reader of the text is that I have to try and wrap my head around who the Bible was written to, who that book was written to, and what that meant to the people of that age. So I have to do the very best I can to jump into my, to my time machine and try and understand the culture and the time and what the language meant to the people that this book was written to. If I do that, then I'm able to, as, as Walton says, to ethically read the text. I'm asking the questions of the text that the text is trying to answer. I'm not trying to impose my modern Western mindset on an ancient document. So what we're going to try and do is wrap our head around some culture, wrap our head around some understanding, and then we're going to have a look at what the text says, the first few verses of it, and then try and understand it uh, as it was intended to. And John Walton's the, the scholar who's trying to help us understand the context and the setting and the language for that time. So I'll begin with a quote from him. And this is what he says about the creation text and about the time. He says, the Israelites, among, uh, the Israelites, along with everyone else in the ancient world, believed instead that every event was an act of deity, that every, pla every plant that grew, every baby born, every drop of rain, every climactic disaster was an act of God. There were no miracles there were only signs of a deity's activity. The categories of natural and supernatural have no meaning in the ancient world, let alone any interest to them. So just try and stop for a moment and think about what that is. So in the ancient world, there was no category for natural and supernatural. There was nothing that took place that was not an act of the gods. For the ancient world, their, our understanding of science is how we test the world. We look for proof, we look for evidence, we look to be able to reconstruct experiments to get the same results to try and uh, prove something. That's how we understand the world. In the ancient world, that wasn't the case at all. The ancient world's 
uh, science, if you like, was their mythology. And their mythology is not fairy tales. For them, their mythology was a, a way of seeing the world. And they believed that there were deities and gods, and these gods were in control of everything, whether it rained or not. Whether if I had a child and that child died, that was the God's judgment on me. If we got rain or we didn't get rain, that was the God's judgment. There was no supernatural and natural. It was all the work, the activity or non-activity of the gods. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty profoundly different way of seeing the world than what we're used to, isn't it? It's sort of like a really different way of understanding things. So if we take an ancient text and then we impose our, ancient, our modern thinking on an ancient piece of writing, we can misunderstand it and miss some of the truth that's in there that God actually wants us to understand. So our first step back is a look at how the ancient world was seen. This is how the ancient world was perceived and understood by the people that were there. So the world they believed was a cube. Okay, so the world is this cube. And in this cube down the bottom, this is the great deep. And the great deep held this very terrifying creature, which was a chaos creature. And this chaos creature was generally a giant dragon. And this dragon was everything that frightened and scared the life out of these people. The dragon was the cause of storms. The dragon was the cause of going out on the seas. And the dragon was inhabiting the water. And the dragon was everywhere. The dragon was chaos. And this place here is called Sheol. This is how the earth was held up, they believed, in these great pillars. And Sheol was this place of the dead. There was no heaven or hell. There was Sheol. And when we died... Everybody went to Sheol. Didn't matter who you were. Everybody ended up in Sheol. And then above Sheol here, there was some great lakes. And then there was the earth. And then there was the sea. And the sea sat. There were these two big foundations. And the way these foundations worked was this, this thing above here was called a firmament. And that held out the rain. Because the Bible speaks about there being waters above and waters below. And so in the ancient world, they thought there must be something that holds the water because where does the rain come from? And that's called the firmament. And the firmament had windows in it. And then at the time the gods decided and declared, the firmament windows would open and we would get rain. And once that they had had enough, the firmament windows would close. And under the firmament, in the firmament, was the, was the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds... Everything was under this firmament. That's what they believed. And then above the firmament, up here, was the waters. That's where the rain was. And above that was the heavens. That's where God lived. So in the ancient world, as the Genesis author writes this book, this is how they understand the world to be. This chaos creature and judgment was in the oceans and the sea. And you would go out on the sea and if you made a voyage and you got home safely, then the gods had willed that you were okay. If you went out on the sea and your ship or your boat went down, it was because you were judged and the chaos creature grabbed a hold of you and ended your life. This was how the ancient world thought. 
So as we sit here, we're now going to uh, step into our text and we're going we're gonna to make the room dark. Okay, so don't be scared. We're going to make the room dark and we're just going to sit in the dark for a little bit. We're just going to sit in the dark for a little bit and then we're going to read a little bit of our text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, join with me church, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The text wants us to understand that there was darkness, and then there was light. And this is the beginning of creation. If we could have some lights, Brad. So now we begin to get into a slightly different way of understanding what creation is. And this way of understanding is trying to understand from an ancient perspective and we're understanding only what the text tells us. This is not theology, this is just the Bible the Hebrew mind at that time, and this is what John Walton says. God created by assigning functions throughout the heavens and the earth, and this is how he did it. The chapter does involve creative activities, but all in relation to the way the ancient world thought about creation and existence, by naming and separating and assigning functions, the roles of an ordered system. So what he's saying is, in the ancient world, as they began to understand what creation was, it wasn't the formation of matter, as we would think creation is. It was different. He says somewhere else, he says, the authors, the ancient authors' uh, concerns were much like others in the ancient Near East, where the greatest exercise of power the gods had was not demonstrated in the manufacturing of matter, but in the fixing of destinies. So creation was not about the the creation of stuff, of things, of matter. He's talking about creation being the assigning of roles and functions. I looked into this. I looked into this a lot. And it's a fascinating thing. And there is a, a whole heap of ancient Babylonian myths and Sumerian myths. All the nations around Israel all had myths. And one of the most powerful things that anybody had was there was this Babylonian 
uh, myth of this, uh, this sort of guy who had a tablet. And this tablet was the tablet of destinies. And the tablet of destinies was a tablet that named things and assigned its roles and duties. And whoever had this tablet was able to distribute destiny to everyone because they had the power of creation, the power of naming and assigning titles. Okay, And the myth goes, the Babylonian myth goes, that a monster saw this power and fought this guy and they had a battle. The monster gets a hold of this tablet and then the the Babylonian gods are terrified because this uh, monster now has this great power of being able to name things, the power of creation. So there's this war in the Babylonian uh, pantheon of gods and eventually the gods get this tablet back. And as a result, as a gift to humanity, they give out names and associations and roles and functions every year. That's how they celebrate their New Year's festival back then. So this understanding of creation being a signing of roles and function in the ancient world is a powerful and profound sense of power. So we see here God creates by beginning to name and associate things with roles and functions. And then we see a little bit later on in Genesis in 2.19, when Adam is made and the animals are made, God then tells Adam that it's his job to begin to name the animals. And the animals are brought past him and Adam's role is to name them. He takes on this creative aspect just as God had done in the uh, in the early creation this naming things becomes very very important so that's what creation means to an ancient person in an ancient text at that time so creating from what so scripture says that the earth was what we say formless and empty but the hebrew word is let's say it together how would you say that tohu wabohu so tohu wabohu is a way of trying to communicate this uh, we say the earth was formless and empty if you start looking through there's like 30 different places that it's used but i've grabbed three for you just to to help us understand so the hebrew language is called a poor language And it's poor because there's only a a small amount of words to describe things. So the words that are used before and the words that are used after help us understand the context of something. So this tohu wabohu word in Deuteronomy 32.10, it's used to describe a wilderness that has wind howling over it. In 1 Samuel 12.21, tohu wabohu is used to describe the barrenness and unfruitfulness of idols. The Bible says that these idols are tohu wabohu. They have no fruitfulness to them. They produce nothing. They're barren. Isaiah 24.10 tells us that there was a desolate wasteland, a tohu wabohu wasteland. It's just desolate, fruitless. And Jeremiah 4.23, which is my favorite Typical Jeremiah fashion. He describes Tohu Vavohu as this is a place where the light is gone, where the mountains are quaking, where there are no people, where there are no birds, and where the lands are fruitless. 
He says that it's like a town, tohu vavohu. He uses it to describe a town that's abandoned. So the Bible says that in the ancient world, that the earth was tohu vavohu. And as tohu vavohu was happening, the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. So there's this concept of there was something there. But the something that was there was fruitless, was empty, was a wasteland, was non-productive. And in the ancient world, fruitless and empty and non-productive was disorder, was not functional. And the non-functional part of the world was a non-creation because they were an agricultural people who needed to produce food to live. They weren't people who lived in cities. But creation was about land being fruitful, which is the opposite to this tohu vavohu. And God said, let there... So remember our thinking about the the way that the, the world was seen and about assigning value to things and about assigning worth. Let's listen to verse 6. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, read it with me, church. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry. Ground appear. (laughs) And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And God saw that it was good. So can you see a little bit of that thinking in the way that the text is written? So here we are back again at this picture. Why was order so important in the ancient world? Because you think about it and you think of creation. My view of creation is who made the planet and when and how and in what order. That's the way I think about creation. In the ancient world, order and function was far more important than how this rock came into being. So you think about that. Their culture and their thought was the chaos creature filled them with fear because the chaos creature could come up and grab them at any point at any time. There could be a huge storm. They could be on a boat and the boat could be overturned. Whole families and communities could be lost Everybody was terrified of the chaos creature. And the only way that you could combat the chaos creature was to bring about a place of order. Because what order did was order pushed the chaos creature down and brought about some place of fruitfulness and some place of order where we could have some level of safety and some level of normal life. Because before there was order, there was just water and darkness. That's what we're told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. There was darkness. Chaos reigned. Before God created, chaos reigned. And then we see the introduction of God, the Spirit of God, or the breath of God, or the Ruach of God, is how it's said in Hebrew, was hovering above the chaos. 
hovering above the chaos. So in the ancient world, darkness and chaos and the waters were the most powerful things that there were. Everybody was trying to manage those things. And this story, Israel's creation story, is God speaking. And God said, let there be light. And there was. When God spoke light into the universe, all of the disorder, so that's part of what our little creation is here. You see there's all sorts of things going all over the place and looks a little bit like a mess. But in the center is kind of like a circle triangle There's something there. All the mess creates the space that has the the perfect thing in the middle, the ordered thing in the middle. And for the people at that time, God speaking creation, speaking light, was to take half of chaos's power and to dispense it and dispel it. God brought light. And the second thing that God did was he was able to turn back the water he was able to push back the water separate the waters so as that the people could have land so the people would be safe because under the water was this chaos creature and he would get you so this creation story is a story of bringing order into disorder and that was at the time, what was the most important thing to the people. We see this even in the New Testament. Do you remember the story when Jesus is on the lake? Do you remember he's on the lake? He's with the disciples. They're in the boat, the Sea of Galilee, and a storm rages. And do you remember, was it day or nighttime when the storm raged? (laughs) Yell out to me, people, come on! It was nighttime, wasn't it? So here's these disciples, the sailors. They're in this boat. It's nighttime. We've got darkness and we've got sea. Okay? And there's a storm that comes. And what happens? Everybody is terrified. They think they're going to die. They think the sea is going to grab them. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping in the boat, isn't he? Chaos is overraining them. It's, it's coming in. It's going to take the boat. They're going to be judged. This is their mindset. And the Son of God is sleeping in the boat. And he gets up and he says, enough. And the sea is calm. And the disciples freak out. Why do they freak out? Because this guy, this carpenter from Jerusalem, was able to push back back the chaos this carpenter from jerusalem brought order where there was disorder and it freaked them out because they thought that no one could do that and that was this jesus says this is who i am i can bring about order from disorder i was there before the creation of the world i know how to do this that was a a way that that sort of this idea took place So this is the feared chaos creature of a Babylonian ancient dragon. This is what everyone was so scared of. Doesn't look very scary, does it? So I decided to bring Smarg in from The Hobbit. Okay? Every creation narrative, every creation story in the ancient Near East begins one way. 
always begins with a humongous Avengers-style galactic fight where the goody and the baddie or the baddie and the not-so-baddie because they're all pretty bad in these ancient creation myths and I have read loads of them but there is always a battle there is always a war and whoever wins destroys the other and generally earth and creation and humanity is birthed from the the dead body of the vanquished god or demigod in every near eastern ancient near eastern creation parable they're all basically the same israel's creation parable doesn't begin with a battle israel's creation parable begins with a god who hovers over the chaos in the darkness and then at his word pushes it back at his word takes chaos that is a terrifying dragon that's going to come and eat my family and take us away we cannot manage it and Israel's God is able to bring order to a place and push the chaos back that's the point of the creation narrative in the story it's not about from the text it's not about when was the earth made and how old is it and if that part wasn't made before this part none of that is what is in the text and Walton says for the people of the time who were reading this book it was written to them it was written about how it was that they were going to push back chaos and make a life that was ordered and fruitful and safe for their families so we don't need to take science and try and push it and squeeze it and destroy science because it has to match up to this Bible. Because if we're doing that, we're asking questions of the text that the text was never intending to answer. We don't need to do that. We can allow science to be science and we can allow it to shape and form part of our information because it does not touch the point of Genesis 1 and the point of Genesis 1 is to teach us what creation is all about and what it is that God creates and why because as we go on week after week this will open and unfold more and more and more and become more and more apparent and I think it's a profound way of understanding the Bible and it's a profound way of being able to use our our minds and our brains to put our heads back in the ancient culture so what does Genesis 1 mean for me in 2018 here? And this is what struck me as I was preparing. Where do you long for the creator of the universe to bring order into your life? Where in your story, where in your life, where in your family are things in disarray? Where in your story is chaos reigning supreme? Now, we might say chaos reigning supreme is an addiction. We might say chaos reigning supreme is, is not being able to control things the way that we want or we're not in safety. We don't know what it might be. But where in our life is disorder and chaos reigning supreme? Because when we step into relationship and fellowship with Jesus, he calls us to a place of order. 
And the Spirit of God that was hovering over the waters, that was hovering over the Tovu Vavohu, steps in and speaks into our story and into our lives fruitfulness. Steps into our lives order. Brings us to a point and to a place where we can take the desolate wilderness and turn it into rich, fertile farming ground. Because the point is not to allow disorder and chaos to reign and rule in our lives. 